When you hear the word prohibition, what do you think of? Do you picture the roaring 20s and gangsters like Al Capone? Maybe you think of drug prohibition, gambling, sex work, or age restrictions on tobacco. Maybe you consider the migrants who are forbidden from crossing international borders. Whatever comes to mind, you probably know that various forms of prohibition are embedded into the fabric of our society, and if you're like most people, you don't think it's working. I'm Scott Cecil, the host of Prohibited, a podcast about prohibition. On this show, I explore the impacts of prohibition by interviewing those who are working to dismantle, create, or maintain its various forms. This is Prohibited. Welcome back to Prohibited. I hope you've been enjoying the Season 2 content because we're really excited about the content we've been putting out recently, and that includes this latest episode, where I sat down with Garrett Ruscher, a harm reductionist and social worker by trade, and a drug policy and anti-prohibitionist activist at heart. Garrett and I begin the episode by discussing how the COVID-19 pandemic continues to affect harm reduction services in New York City where he lives, and then we go on to discuss the harm caused by both internal and external stigma of drug users. We also explore a bit about the abstinence model of recovery and the disease addiction model for substance use disorder and the limitations of those two models. So let's get to the interview with Garrett. Garrett Ruscher, thank you for joining me on Prohibited. Thanks for having me. Amazing to be here. I'm glad we were finally able to connect. It's been sort of a wild spring, and we've been planning this for a few months, which means I've been thinking about this interview for a few months, and so I hope you're... Oh, I've, I've centered my life around this interview for the last couple months, so I'm very excited to do we it. We expect nothing less of our guests. And so to start out, <laughs> uh, I did give the listeners a, a, a little bit of background about you in the introduction to the interview, but before we delve into these yeah. questions, mm-hmm. why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and the work that you do? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I've been working as a harm reduction counselor uh, and mental health therapist for about five years. Um, you know, what this means is I provide mental health services for people who are actively using or have a history of using drugs. Um, you know, this usually men, men, like means uh, individual and group therapy, but also included, you know, coordinating Narcan programs, providing honest drug education, referrals to other programs such as like needle exchanges. Thank you, Garrett. Before we get into the specifics of your work, I want to talk with you about how you got involved in it, because we've had several other harm reductionists on the show in season one, Trisha Christensen with the Baltimore Harm Reduction Coalition, Kat Humphreys with the Harm Reduction Action Center, and then, of course, Mitchell Gomez from Dance Safe. And they sort of communicated to me that they each had a roundabout way of ending up in harm reduction or direct service work. So was that the case for you as well, or have you always intended to be engaging in this work? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. And I must say for those listeners who haven't listened to the stories, I highly encourage them to do so. Um, you know, I would say that the pathway to sort of where I am now started at a relatively young age. Um, I grew up in Maine, right, with a group of friends who started experimenting with drugs at a very young age. Uh, so I was pretty frequently around drugs and people using them, you know, myself included. Um, and I also had a mother who ran the resource center in Portland. So I was very like comfortable um, and sort of used to drugs at that time. Um, and, you know, and as I started growing up and, and I started, you know, recognizing while some of the harms and dangers my, you know, peers and people I knew experienced were from 
the more chaotic or intense use, uh, a lot of it still was, was much more, I would argue, came from sort of the stigma and the shame and then getting in trouble sort of because they were using, but not from the drugs themselves. Um, and so I started getting a little bit curious about this. And, and you know, I, I left uh, Maine and went to Bard College, which is a place relatively well known for its drug culture. Uh, and, you know, it was funny to sort of go there and see the same drugs being used by a very different group of people in terms of privilege, right? And 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 just like there being no consequences or the consequences being very different. Um, so it sort of like really, you know, resonated with me. And so I always knew that I wanted to, I had a passion for, for substance use and, and for, for people who use drugs um, because of the people that I knew growing up. But that was when it sort of hit me that, you know, the experiences people have with drugs are much more than the drugs themselves, right? And how to help them find that healthier relationship is something that I just sort of came to after that. Thank you, Garrett. I want to delve in a little bit to who your clients are and what segments of the population that you work with, because I think a lot of folks have a perception about who needs direct service and harm reduction services, when really all or most people could use some form of harm reduction, at least sometimes. So who do you work with specifically and how do those folks connect with you? Yeah, um, so I've worked with a variety of people over the years. And, and let me just say that I completely agree about there sort of being this perception of who needs harm reduction services, um, you know, who doesn't. And, and I'm hoping that this changes over time as we, as we start to recognize that harm reduction is not only specific services, but a mindset on how to treat other people. Um, so I've worked, you know, I spend most of my time uh, in New York, specifically working a program called Recharge, uh, which worked with MSM and transgender women who use crystal meth. Um, I also worked in a couple of behavioral health uh, programs uh, and also a, a program that focused on the people who are ultra-Orthodox or were previously ultra-Orthodox and are looking to explore the world outside of that. Um, but no matter where you are, right, is that it's just, it's just as important. What I've found is that it is just as important to emphasize kindness in your treatment um, as it is to bring about clinical expertise. Uh, and this applies doubly so when it comes to working with people who use drugs, um, just because we're talking about a community, right, who's been shamed, stigmatized, criminalized, even in what you'd call the treatment setting. And when I say treatment, you can't see me or listeners can't see me, but I'm using like air quotations when I say treatment. Um, and so when you work with people and, and begin to emphasize kindness, you allow for a safer space for them to be honest and exploratory with their use, uh, which helps them foster and develop new relationships to drugs. And this is not only, you know, people maybe with more chaotic, intense use, but also people who are like you know, just questioning their casual marijuana use um, or having a drink or two every night. I mean, this can be applicable um, the, across the entire spectrum of substance use. So, Garrett, I think you did mention that you're based in New York City now, which was particularly hard hit by the beginning of the first wave of the COVID-19 pandemic. In fact, listeners will know that New York City was the global epicenter of the pandemic in April and May. So I want to start there and ask you, in a broad sense, how has the pandemic affected direct service harm reduction in the city? And have things started to return to normal in recent weeks as the spread of the virus in New York City has come a little bit more under control. Yeah, uh, it's it's definitely changed a lot. Um, so as someone who focuses most of my work on mental health and therapeutic services, you can imagine that, you know, COVID has made it near impossible to meet in person, right? So all these programs, these harm reduction programs that have people come in for individual sessions or come in groups, 
um, have been unable to do so in person. And, you know, I, so some of the groups I've run have been right on Zoom or, you know, um, yeah, primarily right on Zoom. Uh, but it just doesn't bring the same energy. It, it does sort of help people access it to who might be further away. Uh, but there is a difference in sort of being able to see people and being able to be in person, particularly for therapy. Um, and, you know, a big deal is too, some of these people were, their use might be secret, right? Because of prohibition and, and the narratives we've created about people who use drugs, you know, a lot of people aren't out about their use. And so all of a sudden then they can't speak in their house because they're with their family or because their roommate, they're scared of their roommates learning that they're using substances. So they can't really be as forward and, and, and open, um, which is very understandable, but that, that's, but that's a really important factor in helping people explore their use and, and find healthy relationships to drugs themselves. Um, and, and beyond that, you know, when you talk about other just harm reduction services, uh, you know, COVID has really thrown a wrench in the gears. There's been some great coverage of this by journalists and advocates who focus on tr- uh, substance use. And they pointed out that what we've seen, right, is, is sort of like the golden rule of drug use is, particularly with opioids, is to never use alone. Um, but we're now in a world where social distancing takes precedence and it makes it complicated for services to continue the way they have been. And, uh, you know, and even with COVID being covered to the extent it has, which is which is obviously a good thing, um, but it really has sort of made, you know, over opioid overdose deaths re- kind of fade into the background of the news, even though they're still on the rise. So it's not making the headlines, but it's still just as much of a problem. Before we take a quick break, Garrett, you used air quotes when you were talking about treatment earlier. You're a harm reductionist. You obviously work with folks who are experiencing substance use disorder or may not be experiencing substance substance use disorder, but are still seeking some sort of harm reduction services. Why did you use air quotes when speaking about treatment? Treatment, how our treatment model really works right now is that it's so interwoven with the criminal justice system, with prohibition, uh, that I I often use air quotes when I say treatment because it's often coerced, right? Which is not real treatment. Uh, If people are forced into a program and being told what their goals are and being told what they need to be doing and being told like, this is wrong, this is right, without their input, that's not that's not really treatment. I mean, that's just another form of almost like incarceration in a certain sense. Um, and so we need to sort of take a step back and, and, and see what we view as treatment uh, and, and either expand that in some areas, such as being like, okay, well, if this person is taking this drug to have a healthy relationship with this drug, right, uh, that's good. Whereas treatment and saying like, oh, we're forcing them into this program and they don't have an option and they don't have, they don't have a say in what their goals are. That, that's not really treatment. So we really, how we've, how we've molded it now or, or modeled it after is just not something that I believe is in the best interest of people who are, part of, who are part of it. Yeah, thank you for that because I think it's a good segue into the next question. I wanted to ask you about some of the ways in which we treat drug users differently than people suffering, suffering from any other health condition in the formal healthcare system. So you mentioned one of those, which is coerced or forced abstinence. And while abstinence might work for some people, I'm sure that you and I both know people who have recovered from substance use disorder, from alcohol or other drugs. And they say that they entered recovery by abstaining and continuing to abstain throughout recovery, whereas there are other folks that may pursue a different model. Is abstinence an inferior recovery model? And then what does is, what is the non-abstinence recovery model look like? So that's a really great question. And, and I think it's a really important here to, to bring this up because 
there's this weird belief that harm reduction is anti-abstinence, right? Or that the two of them are somehow competing or opposites, uh, and they're not. Um, abstinence itself is a form of harm reduction. Uh, and the issue is that when we, the issue, right, is sort of what I've spoken before, is that we form our entire treatment model, not after abstinence, but after abstinence only, right? Is that it's, it's, it's sort of having this one-size-fits-all policy that we've seen doesn't work for everyone. In fact, it doesn't work for most people. So treatment for substance use disorders really need to be tailor-made to fit the needs um, of the people going through them and, and what works for individuals because our, our current treatment system is so interwoven, as I said before, with law enforcement and criminal justice that the abstinence only is sort of a result of that because anything else would be technically criminal, quote-unquote, or, or whatever. Um, and so it's not that it's not that the abstinence model is inferior. Um, it's just that when you say abstinence only... Uh, it, it doesn't give you the options to select what's best for you. Abstinence really works for some people. Other people, it doesn't. And we need to be able to have a model that allows for all options for people to choose what best works for them and what gives them the best quality of life. You're listening to Prohibited. Before we continue, I'd like to tell you about one of Prohibited's Season 2 advocacy sponsors, whose support makes this show possible. This episode of Prohibited is brought to you by MCBA, the Minority Cannabis Business Association a nonprofit business league who serves minority cannabis entrepreneurs, workers, patients, and consumers. MCBA's primary mission is to create an equitable cannabis industry through the economic empowerment of communities of color who have been disproportionately affected by the war on drugs. MCBA leads a network of cannabis entrepreneurs and activists who engage directly with policymakers to advocate for fair implementation and enforcement of sensible cannabis policies. Do you think we should prioritize establishing an equitable cannabis industry? Then you can harness the power of MCBA's network to connect cannabis enthusiasts of color to the resources and businesses that can assist them. Support MCBA by joining their growing network of entrepreneurs and activists or become a donor. For more information, contact MCBA today at info at minoritycannabis.org or visit their website at minoritycannabis.org. You can support the Minority Cannabis Industry Association today. All right, welcome back to Prohibited. Garrett, of course you know this podcast is about prohibition rather than harm reduction. So let's focus specifically on how drug prohibition affects your work. Listeners of the show will remember the conversation we already referenced from last season with Mitchell Gomez of DanceSafe, which is actually titled Drug Prohibition Harm Reduction. So, Garrett, I'm sure that you agree with what Mitchell said on that episode, that a lot of the folks uh, like yourself that are in harm reduction, what you're essentially trying to do is to reduce the, the harms caused by drug prohibition itself. So can you expand for listeners why that is? Because for a lot of folks, I think drug use itself is the thing that they think needs to be addressed rather than actual prohibition. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so the basic answer to this is, is that we have to acknowledge drug use doesn't exist in a vacuum. Um, the best way to look at this is through what we call the biopsychosocial model uh, and the drug set setting, is that you know people's mindset, their physical health, the environment, it all plays an incredibly important role uh, in someone's use and their relationship to a drug and how it affects them. So, you know, it's taking a step back and being like, okay, people are going to use drugs, they always have, and they always will. Uh, that, that's sort of the first step in recognizing that prohibition doesn't work because it, it just never has, I mean, historically, ever. Um, so when we recognize this, we, we look at, okay, what can we make sure, what can we do to c- 
control you know their safer use what can we do to help them if we can't stop this what can we do to make it safer and so factors what we can control are policies and are you know establishing safe environments um and also to talk about drug use and the people who use drugs differently so something that i the thing that i want to speak to a little bit more um is, is about how prohibition really creates a harmful narrative about drug use and and you know what's I mean, not funny, but horrible, right? I've worked with so many people who come in and say, the first session is they come in and say, you know, uh, I have a drug problem. You know, I'm an addict. Uh, I have this. Like, can you help me? You know, what can we do? It's like, okay. And we sit down and even in the first session, once we start exploring what they find problematic about their use or what they like about their use or what it does for them, um, it's it's not uncommon for, you know, the, the people I've worked with to realize that it's not that they have a problem with drugs, um, but that they have, a, you know, they've been labeled with this narrative and this stigma uh, that's caused them severe, you know, self-esteem and mental health issues. Um, and so many times, many times much more harm, you know, this narrative caused much more harm than the drug use ever did. And once they recognize that, you know, I've, I can speak to it firsthand that they begin to, you know, have a better quality of life. Um, they begin to have a healthier relationship to their, to their drug use, even if they're using the same amount, Right. Um, it, it's all about sort of perceiving themselves as this, this, this sort of stereotype, this this image of quote unquote an addict or, or a drug user that we've that we've created, even because it's false, it's wrong. Um, and once they're able to separate themselves from that, it's really helpful. Garrett, from what you're describing, it sounds like one of the pieces of treatment that a lot of folks you inter- interact with need is the internalized stigma that they hold because of being labeled, quote-unquote, a drug addict or a drug user. Can you give any other examples of things that would essentially go away or be greatly reduced in the work that you're doing, right? the type of help that people need that would potentially disappear or be greatly reduced if we simply legalize drugs? So, you know, the internalized stigma and the external stigma is one of those. What are a couple of other examples, if you can think of some? Yeah, I think one way to think about this is, um, you, yeah, you mentioned, right, like sort of like the external, you know, harms and also the internalized stigma. And those two really go hand in hand. So when we talk about legalizing drugs, it's not only it's like, <laughs> but almost like sometimes people are like, oh, well, that just means we throw them, you know, in a throw all the drugs in a gas station and people can walk in and take whatever they want. Like, no, I mean, part of legalizing drugs is honest education and changing the narrative about substance use so that it's not only acceptable to, you know, have a long day and go home to have a cold beer, um, but to switch that to a drug of their choice uh, and to allow them a safe supply in order to use that drug. But what's important, right, is that with this comes along, you know, honest education, understanding that drugs aren't, there's not a moral difference between one drug and another, or there's one drug's not worse or better or bad or good. I mean, they're just drugs. And so one thing that I think of when I, you know, when thinking about this is, so say, let's talk about, you know, opioid overdoses, right? Is that we can do all the Narcan training in the world. If we legalize, you know, we provide a safe supply. Um, everyone is trained in Narcan or a lot, at least Narcan is readily available. If people, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if people are still shamed and, and feeling this internalized stigma of, of using they're going to use alone, which will lead to, which can lead to a, a, an opioid overdose death. Um, and people won't be there to use the Narcan because, you know, someone who's using doesn't want to tell people that they are. Um, so it's really this, it's both pieces are really important because we can do everything we can in the one. We can, we can track expand services and policies, but if we don't change 
how we treat people who use drugs and how we, you know, the image that we create of substance use is not going to make a difference. Yeah, thank you for connecting the following two dots for me, because obviously we've talked a lot about on this show how drug prohibition makes the drug supply itself more dangerous. But I don't think I'd given as much weight to how dangerous drug use becomes because of the stigma that drug users have associated with it. And I Mm -hmm. think that I've focused a lot on the first piece, but not the second one. So I'm glad we have you on today because I think I'll probably need to do some more episodes about that, that second piece. Um, well, let's lighten the mood a little bit and talk about social media because who doesn't love social media? Can't get enough. You know, uh, there's so much, there's so much great discourse there around drug use. Right. But well, at least Garrett on your Twitter feed, (laughs) some, some great, some, some not. So (laughs) I think your Twitter feed's a great one. Um, you probably know by the number of hearts that I send your way that, uh, that I enjoy your Twitter. I think you post a lot of insightful tweets. It's funny. So I encourage listeners pause right now and go find Garrett on Twitter. It's at Garrett Ruscher. Garrett has two R's and two T's. So it's G-A-R-R-E-T-T-R-E-U-S-C-H-E-R. Garrett Ruscher, all one word. So Garrett, I want to go over a recent tweet of yours as a primer for you to expand on some of the thoughts that maybe can't fit into 140 characters. Yeah. So in a recent tweet, you wrote, um, quote, we want people to announce they're powerless over their relationship to drugs when what they really are powerless over is access to adequate services, skilled treatment, and non-judgmental support. Elaborate on that. So that particular tweet uh, came about from my usual daily routine of bike around New York City while getting, you know, making myself angry about how we treat people who use drugs. Uh, So, you know, I was thinking about my experiences in in drug court, um, where I spent a lot of time you know, I spent a lot of time advocating for clients, uh, you know, talking about them, saying how well they were doing. And, you know, the entire process is, is bullshit, to be honest. Uh, you know, they have you come in uh, and, and play the part like they're hearing you out on the conditions of this person's life and all they've accomplished. But, you know, if the urine doesn't test negative, it doesn't matter, right? Like, it, it's it's irrelevant. Um, and so I've, I've been there because many of my clients were referred to, from the court referred to like NA, a 12-step program. And as you and your listeners probably know, the first step in these programs is to admit your powerlessness, right? Uh, You're powerless over your relationship to a drug. And, you know, this is saying this sort of, we we touched on this a little bit ago, but this is sort of being like, it's all about the drug, right? It's all about you and the drug, which is is not true. Uh, It doesn't take into account your experience at your home or at work. It doesn't take into account trauma or a million other reasons someone may have a chaotic relationship to a substance um, you know, or the fact that they might just be over-policed, right? I mean, the people who are forced into these programs are the people who are interacting with the police the most or being forced to. And so from what I've experienced, when you have access to those things, such as adequate services, skilled treatment, non-judgmental support, you have a much better chance of building a healthy relationship to, to a drug. But most people don't have that opportunity. Uh, we don't give it to them we throw them into NA uh, and we sort of say, well, there you go. It's all, it's all you now. You have to say you're powerless. And the reason that we do that is because if, as long as we keep pushing that narrative on them, saying it's, it's your power, it's your powerless over the drug, it makes it so we don't have to admit that we're the ones who have failed them, that we are not the ones supplying proper, um, you know, proper services or funding for these services or harm reduction. And, and all of a sudden it's on them because it's not us. It's not on our, it's not our fault. It's, 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 it's a it's a them problem and not an us problem. Yeah, what you're describing, I think, definitely applies to alcohol, right? Like folks who are experiencing alcoholism, yeah. it's often framed as 
you have no power over it. This is a disease. You can't control it. And I mean, I just can't imagine what position that puts folks in, in terms of what a path forward is if they want to enter recovery. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, and we've also seen, right? Like, and this is why people, this idea of like hitting rock bottom also is just is such a weird concept because it's, it's actively saying that like you have to essentially come close to death or, or almost die and, and really harm yourself in order to change. Um, and I can tell you from firsthand experience, that's not true. People change their relationship to drugs all the time without having to go through horrific and traumatizing uh, and, and life-shattering experiences. You're a social worker by trade now. I want to talk to you a little bit about how social workers should interact with the public. And, but I want to do so under the lens of mm-hmm. defunding the police because that's so timely. And you know we've do, done a few episodes about that on the show this season. So you know that I'm a city council member. We know each other. Big fan. And you probably also know that I've called for, oh, well, thank you. <laughs> yes, you know, I'm, um, I'm do, do, doing my part. <laughs> but you know that I've called for defunding our local police department and replacing some of those police officers with other types of emor- emergency support services like mental health crisis response, social workers, community conflict resolution personnel, and restorative justice. A few weeks back, though, turning back to your Twitter feed, which I can't reiterate enough, is excellent. You (laughs) said, quote, To be clear, social workers should have absolutely zero involvement with law enforcement. That being said, I find the idea of social workers being placed in precincts where police are then forced to participate in their workplace meeting routines, such as feelings check-in, hilarious. So, You can talk about the second part if you want, but I want to focus on the first part of your tweet where you said that social workers should have zero involvement with law enforcement. I want to know what you meant by that. And specifically, am I off base by suggesting that we should replace at least some law enforcement personnel with social workers? Yeah. So I think it really depends what you mean by replace, right? Like, should we defund the police and replace them right, with social services and social workers entirely out of the criminal justice system? Absolutely. Yes. Um, but should we bother replacing a couple of cops with social workers who work with the police? Uh, no. I mean, to put it simply, I mean, and this is really funny, it's something that I got in arguments over all the time uh, when going through my graduate program or master's program for social work, right? Social workers, we have to abide by what, what you know, is called the profession, like the, the code of ethics, right? Um, and these ethics include two big ones are that social workers' primary goal is to help people in need and to address social problems and social workers challenge social injustice, and as a social worker, you simply cannot follow these ethical principles if you work with law enforcement, because law enforcement directly harm the people we work with and are the ones who enforce social injustice. Um, and we've, you know, in addition, we've seen how small changes such as like, you know, a couple replacing the few bad apples, quote unquote, you know, doesn't really change toxic police culture. Um, there's really no other option but to defend, defend, well, defund, um, defund the police. So sort of, I think, I think it goes back to like, Social workers can't work with them um, because that's not serving our clients. That's not doing what's best for them. I don't want to put you in an awkward position, Garrett, but I guess what I will say as the host is I think one thing you've revealed for me is that we need to take a look at what social workers and harm reductionists are required to report to an individual drug user's parole officer, probation officer, law enforcement agency, et cetera, because I think you've really turned on the light bulb for me, brighter than it maybe already was before, that... Treatment should never look like punishment if we want it to be as as successful as often as it can be. You're listening to Prohibited. Before we continue with Garrett Ruscher, let's take a moment to hear from this week's sponsor, whose support makes this show possible. 
This episode of Prohibited is brought to you by listeners like you. This program is an all-volunteer project, and our team of volunteers donate their time, energy, and money to make this show possible. From equipment, to building and maintaining the website, to curating content, we rely on listeners like you to keep the lights on. For as little as $1 per month, you can support our work directly. All you have to do is visit patreon.com slash prohibited. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash prohibited. Once again, visit our website at prohibitedpodcast.com and click on the support us tab. Thanks for the support. We can't do it without you. Garrett, let's talk about ketamine and specifically let's talk about police using ketamine on people they've arrested. Heavy sigh indeed. For listeners, ketamine is most commonly used as an anesthetic in hospitals and veterinary clinics because it blocks the brain's pain receptors and can also, when used on humans, knock them unconscious within minutes or put them into a dissociative or trance-like state. The qualities are useful for treating chronic pain and depression, but it's also become a popular recreational substance recently. But since the death of Elijah McClain at the hands of police officers in 2019, it's become more and more well known that police officers are also using ketamine on suspects during arrests. In dozens of recorded cases, officers have uh, have instructed paramedics to inject civilians with ketamine, using safety of the officers as the justification. In reality, though, what appears to be happening is ketamine is being used as a sedative and being abused, really, in the same way that guns and tasers are being. So, Garrett, how long have you known about ketamine being used in this way? And is there any data being kept that you know of showing how, you know, how prevalent this is? Yeah, I, I will say I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed to admit that I, I really did not know um, that ketamine was being used in this way for until, you know, uh, the killing of Elijah McLean. And, um, you know, there's a lot, of course, I don't know, but I, I was pretty shocked to learn this just because I like to think of myself somewhat uh, informed about, you know, drug use and policy and policing. Um, so I learned about this, you know, that this happened roughly around the same time I think most people did. Uh, and, you know, this is also when I learned there's no publicly available data on how often this happens, which is completely unacceptable. Um, you know, I, as far as my, you know, I did some research and as far as I saw reports of ketamine being used during arrest started around like 2017, 2018. But once again, these are reports of it being used. Um, so it's been going on for some time, as far as we know, uh, and clearly has not had the oversight it should have. Um, yeah, it's I, I, I was shocked to learn it and deeply upset just because of, you know, we want ketamine to be used in a really positive and therapeutic way, which it can be. Um, but uh, but pol- having in the hands of police and, and being used to, you know, w- without the consent of the people it's being used on is, is utterly inhumane. Yes. I mean, arrest in and of itself and just simple interaction with law enforcement is, is often traumatizing for a lot of folks. I can only imagine how many layers of trauma are added to that when when you're injected with a drug that's very likely not being identified to you. And then especially if you've never consumed that substance before, the effects and the phys- the physical effects and the mental effects, psychological effects, both immediately and then subsequent from from the administration of the drug could be quite problematic and tra- traumatic for folks. Yeah, it, I mean, it makes you wonder, I mean, how many people, you know, the, the same police that are that are injecting this drug into someone without their consent, how many people they've arrested for consuming that drug on their own 
as an adult. I mean, it's it's just such a backwards. It's yeah, it's totally backwards. I would wonder at this point if there and and I I don't I don't mean to be cheeky about this and, and be flippant about the use of ketamine by law enforcement and paramedics because it's obviously as you say inhumane. I'm left to wonder if there's ever been an instance of someone being arrested for ketamine possession or use that was then injected with ketamine. Um, so something tells me that it's probably happened. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's right. Our system is so backwards enough. It would not surprise me. Shall we unpack another tweet? Let's do it. Awesome. You tweeted the following recently over the spring. You said, if someone identifies with the term addict and finds it helpful, question mark. Great. But any therapist, psychiatrist, or other mental health professional who labels a client an addict and tells them that they are one is unethical and is participating in coercive persuasion. What can you add to that? Yeah. So let me start by saying that I I don't personally use the term uh, addict. Um, Like I said, if someone uses it for themselves and identifies with it and it helps them in their own recovery and and with their own goals, that's really fantastic. Uh, But the reason I don't particularly use it... uh, is is because it encompasses the entire person, right? It's, it's they're not someone living with an addiction or substance use disorder, or um, you know, they're not a person using drugs. They're a quote unquote addict, uh, you know, and it sort of it means that that's all they are, and, it, and it's dehumanizing. Um, and over the years, it's been weaponized uh, through increasing stigmatization um, due to prohibition. And so, you know, when you're working with someone, you know, the the therapeutic relationship between the, the either the counselor, the therapist, and the client is really important. Um, it's, it's the foundation of where all the work comes from. And so, when a clinician or a therapist, you know, who the person who's holding power tells someone, right, the professional tells someone, "You are an addict," um, and and that person doesn't identify with the term, they're labeling this their client with all the stereotypes, all the baggage, and the stigma that come from years of us saying of us you know, making jokes and, and making, having bad information about, about substance use and substance use disorder. Um, and so, you know, what they're doing is essentially gaslighting this person and telling them, oh, you don't know it, but you are, I know that you are. So you need to accept that. Like, you know, and it's, and it's all about, you can't trust yourself because you're an addict. So I'm going to tell you that you are one. You can trust me because I'm the professional. Um, and because they're, because they're sort of seen as the, as the, you know, the people who should know better, right? Or who should, you're, you're told to trust them. We see, you know, I've seen a lot of people take on that label, um, but instead of, instead of it helping them and sort of getting to the place they want to go, it actually causes a lot of harm uh, and self-loathing and confusion because they don't identify with this negative stereotype that they've all of a sudden been labeled with by a person who they are supposed to be able to trust and, and work with. Um, you know, I've worked with some people who in our first session, I, I remember, you know, them coming in and being like, am I an addict? Right. And that's like the first thing they say, you know, I just need to know if I am. And it's just because someone else told them that they were and, and, you know, and we, we unpacked that. And, and as soon as they sort of figure out that it's, it's up to them to sort of determine what their relationship to a drug is, and it's not for other people to say they are this, but, you know, it's incredibly freeing. And, and they've actually, I've, I've had people, you know, that I've worked with over, over a year or six months really refer back to that moment of, of realizing that they weren't this thing that they were told by someone else that they were as incredibly empowering. Um, and to separate themselves from that label was one of the most significant changes they had in their life. Garrett, I've seen other folks in the harm reduction realm criticize the addiction model as a clinical model. So is there anything that you want to say about the addiction model and specifically what are the alternative models that would be more effective than the addiction model for treatment and recovery? 
Yeah, uh, this actually goes back to sort of what we were talking a little bit about uh, at the start of this podcast, which is, you know, addiction, the, the disease model. Um, you know, I, I, I believe it was, uh, I was in a harm reduction training with um, Andrew Tartarski, and he said it really well, where it's like the disease model is just a moral model in a lab coat. And I really like that. Um, because sort of framing, once again, the, the you know, the addiction model just, it, it once again all comes down to personal responsibility, right? It's all about the individual. Like, there's no there's no reason they should be using the drugs. You know, their initial reason for using drugs is ridiculous that you shouldn't be using them recreationally. So any problem that they have is sort of like, at the end of the day, like, it started with their own decision making. Um, and this really takes away, you know, from once again, our, our universal, our communal responsibility to provide services and education and honesty about substance use about to be and and to say like listen this person was if this person experienced chronic homelessness because they were born into poverty and they they aren't given the social services that they need to help themselves because we don't do that then you know what like it's very understandable that they're using a substance to help them get through the day-to-day or you know and and it's and it's looking it's taking a step outward and be like okay it's not just about drugs right it's it's Norman Zimberg said it well it's a drug set setting right it's your mindset going into it it's the environment you're using it. and so um, the most the most recent like up to date model that I particularly use is the biopsychosocial uh, and it just takes out all those factors in into account for someone's substance use and their relationship to, to a drug not just the drug and the brain and the response between the two. Thank you so much for that and we'll be sure to link uh, some resources related to the biopsychosocial model for listeners. So Garrett, I know you've listened to the show before. You know that I close every interview with the following question. Is there anything that you wanted to talk about today that I didn't ask you? About? You know what? I think we, you know, just my personal opinion, but uh, I think we covered some impressive ground today. Um, and, you know, I think all I will reiterate is that just to, you know, <laughs> treat one another with kindness, dignity, and respect, no matter what drugs are being used, uh, whether you've used them or, or don't understand their use, uh, you know, and just be really wary of the labels and the narratives we throw around because they matter. I, I've seen them matter in, in sessions. I've met with people that not only it's, the drugs weren't as harming or as, or as horrible as what they were called or what they believed their family thought them that, thought of them. And so just be really careful with that and yeah, treat one another with respect. Garrett, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for joining me on Prohibited. Pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much, Scott. Thanks for listening to this episode of Prohibited, a podcast about prohibition. Our editor is Chris Harris. Our music is by KCAP. Our webmaster is Ricardo Amaya. And I'm your host, Scott Cecil. If you enjoyed this show, please check out our Patreon campaign at patreon.com prohibited and share it with your friends and family. This podcast is a production of Prohibited Media. You can find a full archive of our episodes at our website, at prohibitedpodcast.com. And if you're listening on iTunes or Spotify, be sure to leave a rating and a review. It helps new listeners find us. If you have ideas or feedback for the show, feel free to send us an email at prohibitedpodcast at gmail.com. And remember, no matter how prohibition impacts your life and the lives of those around you, you're still free to think for yourself. And we hope we've given you something to think about today. We hope you enjoyed the show and see you next time.